Section 70 of Personal Memoirs of U.S. Grant. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Clevenger. Personal Memoirs of U.S. Grant by Ulysses S. Grant. Chapter 70. The End of the War. The March to Washington. One of Lincoln's Anecdotes. Grand Review at Washington. Characteristics of Lincoln and Staunton. Estimate of the different corps commanders. Things began to quiet down, and as the certainty that there would be no more armed resistance became clearer, the troops in North Carolina and Virginia were ordered to march immediately to the capital and go into camp there until mustered out. Suitable garrisons were left at the prominent places throughout the South to ensure obedience to the laws that might be enacted for the government of the several states and to ensure security to the lives and property of all classes. I do not know how far this was necessary, but I deemed it necessary, at that time, that such a course should be pursued. I think now that these garrisons were continued after they ceased to be absolutely required, but it is not to be expected that such a rebellion as was fought between the sections from 1861 to 1865 could terminate without leaving many serious apprehensions in the mind of the people as to what should be done. Sherman marched his troops from Goldsboro up to Manchester on the south side of the James River opposite Richmond, and there put them in camp, while he went back to Savannah to see what the situation was there. It was during this trip that the last outrage was committed upon him. Halleck had been sent to Richmond to command Virginia, and had issued orders prohibiting even Sherman's own troops from obeying his, Sherman's, orders. Sherman met the papers on his return, containing this order of Halleck, and very justly felt indignant at the outrage. On his arrival at Fortress Monroe, returning from Savannah, Sherman received an invitation from Halleck to come to Richmond and be his guest. This he indignantly refused, and informed Halleck furthermore that he had seen his order. He also stated that he was coming up to take command of his troops, and as he marched through, it would probably be as well for Halleck not to show himself, because he, Sherman, would not be responsible for what some rash person might do through indignation for the treatment he had received. Very soon after that, Sherman received orders from me to proceed to Washington City and to go into camp on the south side of the city, pending the mustering out of the troops. There was no incident worth noting in the march northward from Goldsboro to Richmond, or in that from Richmond to Washington City. The army, however, commanded by Sherman, 
which had been engaged in all the battles of the West and had marched from the Mississippi through the southern states to the sea, from there to Goldsboro, and thence to Washington City, had passed over many of the battlefields of the Army of the Potomac, thus having seen, to a greater extent, than any other body of troops the entire theater of the four years war for the preservation of the union the march of sherman's army from atlanta to the sea and north to goldsboro while it was not accompanied with the danger that was anticipated yet was magnificent in its results and equally magnificent in the way it was conducted it had an important bearing in various ways upon the great object we had in view that of closing the war all the states east of the mississippi river up to the state of georgia had felt the hardships of the war georgia and south carolina and almost all of north carolina up to this time had been exempt from invasion by the northern armies except upon their immediate sea coasts their newspapers had given such an account of confederate success that the people who remained at home had been convinced that the yankees had been whipped from first to last and driven from pillar to post and that now they could hardly be holding out for any other purpose than to find a way out of the war with honor to themselves even during this march of sherman's the newspapers in his front were proclaiming daily that his army was nothing better than a mob of men who were frightened out of their wits and hastening panic-stricken to try to get under the cover of our navy for protection against the southern people as the army was seen marching on triumphantly however the minds of the people became disabused and they saw the true state of affairs in turn they became disheartened and would have been glad to submit without compromise another great advantage resulting from this march and which was calculated to hasten the end was the fact that the great storehouse of georgia was entirely cut off from the confederate armies as the troops advanced north from savannah the destruction of the railroads in south carolina and the southern part of north carolina further cut off their resources and left the armies still in virginia and north carolina dependent for supplies upon a very small area of the country already very much exhausted of food and forage in due time the two armies one from burksville junction and the other from the neighborhood of raleigh north carolina arrived and went into camp near the capital as directed the troops were hardy being inured to fatigue and they appeared in their respective camps as ready and fit for duty as they had ever been in their lives i doubt whether an equal body of men of any nation take them man for man officer for officer was ever gotten together that would have proved their equal in a great battle the armies of europe are machines the men are brave 
and the officers capable but the majority of the soldiers in most of the nations of europe are taken from a class of people who are not very intelligent and who have very little interest in the contest in which they are called upon to take part our armies were composed of men who were able to read men who knew what they were fighting for and could not be induced to serve as soldiers except in an emergency when the safety of the nation was involved and so necessarily must have been more than equal to men who fought merely because they were brave and because they were thoroughly drilled and inured to hardships there was nothing of particular importance occurred during the time these troops were in camp before starting north i remember one little incident which i will relate as an anecdote characteristic of mr lincoln it occurred a day after i reached washington and about the time general meade reached burkesville with the army governor smith of virginia had left richmond with the confederate states government and had gone to danville supposing i was necessarily with the army at burkesville he addressed a letter to me there informing me that as governor of the commonwealth of the state of virginia he had temporarily removed the state capital from richmond to danville and asking if he would be permitted to perform the functions of his office there without molestation by the federal authorities i give this letter only in substance he also inquired of me whether in case he was not allowed to perform the duties of his office he with a few others might not be permitted to leave the country and go abroad without interference general meade being informed that a flag of truce was outside his pickets with a letter to me at once sent out and had the letter brought in without informing the officer who brought it that i was not present he read the letter and telegraphed me its contents meeting mr lincoln shortly after receiving this dispatch i repeated its contents to him mr lincoln supposing i was asking for instructions said in reply to that part of governor smith's letter which inquired whether he with a few friends would be permitted to leave the country unmolested that his position was like that of a certain irishman giving the name he knew in springfield who was very popular with the people a man of considerable promise and very much liked unfortunately he had acquired the habit of drinking and his friends could see that the habit was growing on him these friends determined to make an effort to save him and to do this they drew up a pledge to abstain from all alcoholic drinks they asked pat to join them in signing the pledge and he consented he had been so long out of the habit of using plain water as a beverage that he resorted to soda water as a substitute after a few days this began to grow distasteful to him so holding the glass behind him he said doctor couldn't you drop a bit of brandy in that unbeknownst to myself 
I do not remember what the instructions were the President gave me, but I know that Governor Smith was not permitted to perform the duties of his office. I also know that if Mr. Lincoln had been spared, there would have been no efforts made to prevent anyone from leaving the country who desired to do so. He would have been equally willing to permit the return of the same expatriated citizens after they had time to repent of their choice. On the 18th of May, orders were issued by the Adjutant General for a grand review by the President and his Cabinet of Sherman's and Meade's armies. The review commenced on the 23rd and lasted two days. Meade's army occupied over six hours of the first day in passing the grand stand which had been erected in front of the President's house. Sherman witnessed this review from the grand stand which was occupied by the President and his cabinet. Here he showed his resentment for the cruel and harsh treatment that had unnecessarily been inflicted upon him by the Secretary of War by refusing to take his extended hand. Sherman's troops had been in camp on the south side of the Potomac. During the night of the 23rd, he crossed over and bivouacked not far from the capital. Promptly at 10 o'clock on the morning of the 24th, his troops commenced to pass in review. Sherman's army made a different appearance from that of the Army of the Potomac. The latter had been operating where they received directly from the north full supplies of food and clothing regularly. The review of this army, therefore, was the review of a body of 65,000 well-drilled, well-disciplined, and orderly soldiers inured to hardship and fit for any duty but without the experience of gathering their own food and supplies in an enemy's country and of being ever on the watch. Sherman's army was not so well dressed as the Army of the Potomac, but their marching could not be excelled. They gave the appearance of men who had been thoroughly drilled to endure hardships either by long and continuous marches, or through exposure to any climate without the ordinary shelter of a camp. They exhibited also some of the order of march through Georgia, where the sweet potatoes sprung up from the ground as Sherman's army went marching through. In the rear of a company there would be a captured horse or mule, loaded with small cooking utensils, captured chickens and other food picked up for the use of the men. Negro families who had followed the army would sometimes come along in the rear of a company with three or four children packed upon a single mule and the mother leading it. The sight was varied and grand. Nearly all day for two successive days, from the Capitol to the Treasury Building, could be seen a mass of orderly soldiers marching in columns of companies. The national flag was flying from almost every house and store. The windows were filled with spectators. 
the door steps and sidewalks were crowded with colored people and poor whites who did not succeed in securing better quarters from which to get a view of the grand armies the city was about as full of strangers who had come to see the sights as it usually is on inauguration day when a new president takes his seat it may not be out of place to again allude to president lincoln and the secretary of war mr staunton who were the great conspicuous figures in the executive branch of the government there is no great difference of opinion now in the public mind as to the characteristics of the president with mr staunton the case is different they were the very opposite of each other in almost every particular except that each possessed great ability mr lincoln gained influence over men by making them feel that it was a pleasure to serve him he preferred yielding his own wish to gratifying others rather than to insist upon having his own way it distressed him to disappoint others in matters of public duty however he had what he wished but in the least offensive way mr staunton never questioned his own authority to command unless resisted he cared nothing for the feeling of others in fact it seemed to be pleasanter to him to disappoint than to gratify he felt no hesitation in assuming the functions of the executive or in acting without advising with him if his act was not sustained he would change it if he saw the matter would be followed up until he did so it was generally supposed that these two officials formed the complement of each other the secretary was required to prevent the president's being imposed upon the president was required in the more responsible place of seeing that injustice was not done to others i do not know that this view of these two men is still entertained by the majority of the people it is not a correct view however in my estimation mr lincoln did not require a guardian to aid him in the fulfillment of a public trust mr lincoln was not timid and he was willing to trust his generals in making and executing their plans the secretary was very timid and it was impossible for him to avoid interfering with the armies covering the capital when it was sought to defend it by an offensive movement against the army guarding the confederate capital he could see our weakness but he could not see that the enemy was in danger the enemy would not have been in danger if mr staunton had been in the field these characteristics of the two officials were clearly shown shortly after early came so near getting into the capital among the army and corps commanders who served with me during the war between the states and who attracted much public attention but of whose ability as soldiers i have not yet given any estimate are meade hancock sedgwick 
Burnside, Terry, and Hooker. There were others of great merit, such as Griffin, Humphreys, Wright, and Mackenzie. Of those first named, Burnside at one time had command of the Army of the Potomac and later of the Army of the Ohio. Hooker also commanded the Army of the Potomac for a short time. General Meade was an officer of great merit, with drawbacks to his usefulness that were beyond his control. He had been an officer of the Engineer Corps before the war, and consequently had never served with troops until he was over forty-six years of age. He never had, I believe, a command of less than a brigade. He saw clearly and distinctly the position of the enemy and the topography of the country in front of his own position. His first idea was to take advantage of the lay of the ground, sometimes without reference to the direction he wanted to move afterwards. He was subordinate to his superiors in rank, to the extent that he could execute an order which changed his own plans with the same zeal he would have displayed if the plan had been his own. He was brave and conscientious, and commanded the respect of all who knew him. He was, unfortunately, of a temper that would get beyond his control at times, and make him speak to officers of high rank in the most offensive manner. No one saw this fault more plainly than he himself, and no one regretted it more. This made it unpleasant at times, even in battle, for those around him to approach him even with information. In spite of this defect, he was a most valuable officer and deserves a high place in the annals of his country. General Burnside was an officer who was generally liked and respected. He was not, however, fitted to command an army. No one knew this better than himself. He always admitted his blunders, and extenuated those of officers under him beyond what they were entitled to. It was hardly his fault that he was ever assigned to a separate command. Of Hooker I saw but little during the war. I had known him very well before, however, where I did see him at Chattanooga, his achievement in bringing his command around the point of Lookout Mountain and into Chattanooga Valley was brilliant. I nevertheless regarded him as a dangerous man. He was not subordinate to his superiors. He was ambitious to the extent of caring nothing for the rights of others. His disposition was, when engaged in battle, to get detached from the main body of the army, and exercise a separate command, gathering to his standard all he could of his juniors. Hancock stands the most conspicuous figure of all the general officers who did not exercise a separate command. He commanded a corps longer than any other one, and his name was never mentioned as having committed in battle a blunder for which he was responsible. He was a man of very conspicuous personal appearance, tall, 
well formed and at the time of which i now write young and fresh looking he presented an appearance that would attract the attention of an army as he passed his genial disposition made him friends and his personal courage and his presence with his command in the thickest of the fight won for him the confidence of troops serving under him no matter how hard the fight the second corps always felt that their commander was looking after them sedgwick was killed at spotsylvania before i had an opportunity of forming an estimate of his qualifications as a soldier from personal observation i had known him in mexico when both of us were lieutenants and when our service gave no indication that either of us would ever be equal to the command of a brigade he stood very high in the army however as an officer and a man he was brave and conscientious his ambition was not great and he seemed to dread responsibility he was willing to do any amount of battling but always wanted some one else to direct he declined the command of the army of the potomac once if not oftener general alfred h terry came into the army as a volunteer without a military education his way was one without political influence up to an important separate command the expedition against fort fisher in january eighteen sixty five his success there was most brilliant and won for him the rank of brigadier general in the regular army and of major general of volunteers he is a man who makes friends of those under him by his consideration of their wants and their dues as a commander he won their confidence by his coolness in action and by his clearness of perception in taking in the situation under which he was placed at any given time griffin humphreys and mackenzie were good corps commanders but came into that position so near to the close of the war as not to attract public attention all three served as such in the last campaign of the armies of the potomac and the james which culminated at appomattox courthouse on the ninth of april eighteen sixty five the sudden collapse of the rebellion monopolized attention to the exclusion of almost everything else i regarded mackenzie as the most promising young officer in the army graduating at west point as he did during the second year of the war he had won his way up to the command of a corps before its close this he did upon his own merit and without influence end of section seventy recording by jim clevenger little rock arkansas jim at j o c c l e v dot com